Hello everyone, my name is Simon Lovegrove, Global Director of Financial Services Knowledge at Norton Rose Fulbright, and welcome to the first episode of our new podcast series, focusing on the new UK investment firm Prudential Regime, or UK IFPR. As many of you will know, the new regime will take effect on 1st of January next year. And with the deadline fast approaching, we are launching this new podcast series to help clients navigate the changes required under the UK IFPR. This first episode will provide an introduction to the UK IFPR and its application to different types of firm. Subsequent episodes will explore topics such as the new K-factor regime, which is a major shift in the approach to calculating capital requirements. So without further delay, I'm now going to hand over to Jochen Vesta, a senior associate of our London Financial Services team, who will cover general application and categorization of firms under the new regime. So Jochen, over to you. Thank you, Simon. Over the next few weeks, we will take a closer look at the new prudential regime for investment firms. We will cover the new own funds requirements and K-factors, the RFPR group consolidation requirements and the group capital test, and the new governance and remuneration requirements. In this first section, I'm going to speak about the application of the new regime more broadly and the categorization thresholds. Before we start, a short reminder of where we've got to and what we can expect in the coming weeks. The UK was heavily involved in the policy discussions on creating the EU regime. So the UK and the EU regime will be aligned, but the UK will diverge in certain areas to take into account the specifics of the UK market. And we have already seen in divergence in some areas. The UK IFPR will be implemented by way of a mixture of statute, the Financial Services Act 2021 and new FCA rules. Most of the new rules will be brought into a single rule book MIFID proof. The explanatory memorandum to the Financial Services Act confirms that unlike the EU regime, the UK will not be requiring systemic investment firms to apply for authorization as credit institutions. The reasoning behind this is that such firms are already prudentially regulated by the PRA. The Act inserts a new Part 19 into FISMA, which creates a new definition of an FCA investment firm sets out the FCA's new duties to make rules in relation to FCA investment firms and their parent undertakings, and gives the FCA a new duty to make rules in relation to unauthorized parent undertakings of FCA investment firms when necessary. The FCA has already published one discussion paper in June last year. The FCA then issued a first consultation paper in December last year and a second consultation paper in April this year. Now in June, the FCA issued a first policy statement, and this was followed by a second policy statement in July, just a few weeks ago. The FCA intend to publish a further consultation paper and a further policy statement, bring together all of the final rules. So how will the new rules apply to FCA investment firms? First of all, MIFID will only apply to firms that are authorized under the UK Markets in Financial Instruments Directive regime. An FCA investment firm is defined by reference to section 143A of the Financial Services Act. In summary, this is an investment firm that has part 4A permission to carry on one or more regulated activities. It is not designated by the PA and it has its registered office or if it has no registered office, his head office in the UK. So this means any firm that is not subject to MIFID, including a firm that is exempt under Article 3, 
is not affected by the new regime. Such firms, however, will remain subject to Chapter 13 of IPRA-INF. Any firm which would be exempt under Article 3, but have previously opted into MIFID, will of course be called unless they apply for a variation of permission if they would like to stop opting in. The definition of an FCA investment firm also includes collective portfolio management investment firms, so-called CPMIs. The July policy statement now confirmed that small AIFMs that have MIFID permissions are not CPMs or CPMIs, but they are directly authorized under MIFID and therefore they will become MIFID-PRU investment firms and MIFID-PRU will apply to them. We will cover CPMIs in a different section and therefore I would like to focus here on international firms and tight agents. Let's take a look at international firms first. MIFID-PRU imposes obligations on UK parent entities and responsible UK parents for entities established overseas that form part of the same investment firm group, even though these entities may not be carrying on business in the UK. Where an overseas investment firm is applying for authorization in the UK, MIFID Group will not apply directly to that firm. The FCA, however, needs to be satisfied that an investment firm established overseas will be subject to broadly equivalent prudential supervision to MIFID Brew in its home jurisdiction. If this is not the case, the FCA would generally expect the firm to establish a UK subsidiary. Moving on to tight agents. Certain provisions in MIFID Brew, including the requirements on groups and on own funds, will also apply to business carried on by tight agents. The references in MIFID Brew to tight agents do not include appointed representatives that do not meet the definition of a tight agent. In the event the appointed rep does not meet the definition, the firm will still need to consider any potential risks from the business carried on by the appointed rep as part of their cover process. How will firms be categorized under the new regime? All current definitions of FCA investment firms, such as BIPRU, IFPRU, and XMCAT, will be replaced by two broad categories of FCA investment firms. Such firms will either be small and non-interconnected investment firms, so-called SNI firms, or they will not, and therefore be categorized as a non-SNI firm. To qualify as an SNI, the FCA investment firm must not carry out activities that have the greatest potential to cause harm. Therefore, a firm that has permission to deal on own account cannot be considered an SNI. The items for the categorization that will apply will depend on the MIFID services and activities the investment firm undertakes. This means that firms will need to identify all the relevant items based on the services the firm undertakes and then run test calculations in accordance with the methodology set out in MIFID group. One point to note are the changes to the definition of an SNI firm in the July policy statement. The FCA have amended the definition of daily trading flow so that it now applies to firms that trade in their own name on an agency basis. This means that any firm that has a non-zero value DTF cannot be an SNI firm. In addition, a firm must not carry out any activities on such a scale that would cause significant harm to customers or the markets in which it operates. The FCA is proposing to use a quantitative threshold to take account of the scale of the activities. Firms will therefore need to calculate the on and off balance sheet value and the total annual gross revenue from the investment services and activities. 
With the exception of the on and off balance sheet value, the categorization thresholds only relate to MIFID activities of the firm. Although the items used for categorization are to be defined in exactly the manner as the carry factors for calculating the capital requirements, the way they are measured for the categorization is different from the way that they are measured for the calculation of the capital requirements. And this is something firms should bear in mind when running their cash calculations. One additional point to note is that the calculation of AUM COH, the on and off balance sheet total and the total annual gross revenue must each be calculated on a combined basis. So firms must consider whether there are not any other entities within its group they will need to include in the calculation. A transition between two categories is also possible at any point in time. So firms therefore will need to monitor the possibility of a reclassification on an ongoing basis. So this was a general overview of the application of the new regime and the categorization thresholds. We are now looking at the application of the new regime to different types of firms in more detail. In this section of our podcast, Imogen Garner, a partner in our London financial services team, will now look at how the new rules apply to CPMIs. Imogen, over to you. So let's spend a little bit of time just zeroing in on how the new requirements would apply to CPMI firms. So AFIMs, use its management companies that provide MIFID services as a top up, for instance, because they do segregated mandates or maybe they do advisory services or both. And actually, one of the points that the latest policy statement makes is just a reminder about the position of small AFIMs for these purposes, which is that small AFIMs with MIFID top-up permissions, they're actually directly authorised under MIFID. So they're not CPMI firms for these purposes. In other words, the CPMI firm category includes full scope, but not small AFIMs when they also provide MIFID services. Now, the basic point for these firms is that the new rules will apply, generally speaking, in respect of their MIFID business only, with a notable exemption being the fixed overheads requirement that's going to need to be calculated under MIFID Proof 4 for the firm taken as a whole. The basic point for these firms is that the new rules will apply, generally speaking, in respect of their MIFID business only, one notable exception being the fixed overheads requirement that will need to be calculated under MIFID Proof 4 for the firm taken as a whole, as well as continuing to satisfy the prudential requirements under IPRU-IN in respect of their collective portfolio management business. Actually, this need to grapple with dual prudential regimes is going to be quite familiar territory for CPMI firms on one level, because they already have to make sure that they're satisfying the higher of their AFMD or USIT prudential requirements as set out in IPRU-IN, and their prudential requirements as a MIFID um, currently under bipolar. So this element is not especially new. There were a few points of clarification that came up um, under the June policy statement and which might just be worth flagging here too. So some firms had responded to the earlier CP by arguing that the FCA's approach here is more onerous actually than some of the EU member states where those member states are planning to disapply the EU regime to all CPMI, so leaving the UK at a competitive disadvantage, relatively speaking. What the FCA said about this in its 
June policy statement is that what they're concerned with is the potential harm that firms cause as a result of their activities, and that the potential harms from MIFID activities don't change just because the firm is an AFM or use its manager rather than a MIFID authorised investment. Firm. So they're sticking to the guns there. And I, and I don't think that's especially surprising. There were also some points around CPMIs and consolidation, and specifically one of the key things to note is the fact of a drafting emission, actually, in the earlier consultation, um, which has been clarified to state that AFMs are to be included in the definition of financial institutions, which the FCA says was always intended to be the case, and which does make sense in the context of the approach being taken under the UK CRR and the EU investment funds regime. So the effect of this is to make clear that AFIMs are to be included within the scope of an investment firm group where they're subsidiaries or connected undertakings. However, where prudential consolidation applies to the group, the consolidated K-factor calculation is going to apply only in relation to MIFID or equivalent third country activities. Finally, the July policy statement includes some helpful clarifications in relation to the use of transitional provisions by CPMIs. It also specifically addresses concerns raised by some respondents around the different definitions of liquid assets and own funds in the group versus those under AFMD and USITS, but really only at this stage to acknowledge the complications that are posed by having these definitions, which are not the same under the different re regimes, and noting that this is something that the regulator is going to look to address in the future. In this section, Hannah Meakin, a partner in our London Financial Services team, will consider how the new rules apply to commodities firms. So commodity dealers were exempted from the own funds requirement and large exposures requirements in the CRR. Those exemptions will fall away under the IFPR and firms will become subject to MIFID-PRU. However, some of the provisions in MIFID-PRU will apply in a slightly different way for investment firms that are commodity and emission allowance dealers. These are investment firms whose main business consists exclusively of the provision of investment services and or activities in relation to commodity derivatives, deriv derivatives on emission allowances or emission allowances themselves. So the first point is that when calculating the fixed overheads requirement, the FCA proposes that commodity and emission allowance dealers will be able to deduct expenditure on raw materials where the commodity underlies the derivatives that the FCA investment firm is trading. The second point relates to concentration risk requirements, including monitoring the reporting limits and the K factor for trading book exposures. These will not apply to commodity and emission allowance dealers when three conditions are met. The first is that the other counterparty is a non-financial counterparty. The second is that both counterparties have appropriate centralized risk evaluation measurement and control procedures. And the third condition is that the transaction can be assessed as reducing risks directly relating to the commercial activity or treasury financing activity of the non-financial counterparty or its group. And the firm needs to have notified the FCA to that effect. Thirdly, the FCA proposes to allow currently exempt commodities firms to move from their current capital requirements to their new own funds requirement under the IFPR over a period of five years, 
at least in relation to the own funds requirement and the K factor requirement. And finally, the FCA proposes to give commodities and emission allowance dealers five years to meet the new basic liquid asset requirement. So by way of roundup for commodity firms, the new regime will apply some significant changes for some firms, albeit that there are some exemptions that should to some extent extend aspects of the current regime that are beneficial to their needs and phase-ins that should enable firms sufficient time to adapt to the changes. In this section of our podcast, Imogen Gardner will examine some of the key issues for exempt CAD firms. Now, for exempt CAD firms, as I think any affected firms will know, this is going to be an area of quite big change. Previously, advisor arranger firms have been only subject to a very light touch regime. And in the new world, the exempt CAD firms regime is going to disappear. And although it's quite likely that these firms will qualify as an SNI and so be able to use various exemptions and derogations, nonetheless, there are certain areas like the ICARA that will need to be complied with. So those firms are going to need to do a CAD analysis. For exempt CAD firms being subject to a remuneration code that's more like those that are currently in place for buy-proof firms, for example, will be something new. Today, as MUFID firms, They're just subject to high-level conflicts-focused MIFID rules around RAND. So this is going to be quite a significant change, albeit that there may be some scope for calibration of the rules that apply, depending on the scale of the firm. One point um, that's been made by the FCA and its policy statements expressly is around the positioning of firms that might be able to benefit from the Article 3 exemption from MIFID. But to date they may have opted in, and those firms may have wished to be treated as within the scope of MIFID historically in order to avail themselves of passporting rights to do business in the EU pre-Brexit. And now they find themselves making a strategic determination of the relative benefits of having opted in, given that this now brings them into the scope of the IFR. Some exempt CAD firms have been considering this as quite a nuanced technical analysis Because some aspects of the Article 3 test, um, say, for example, around the holding of money, are pretty straightforward. Others, around the precise definitional elements related to receiving transmission services, are a lot less clear. And the FCA hasn't shed a great deal of light on it all, but it does make clear that for those firms that do conclude that they're able and wish to take advantage now of the Article 3 exemption, that they'll need to apply for a variation variation of permission and go through that process, all of which takes time. And so from a lead time perspective, it's something those firms might be wanting to reach a landing on pretty quickly. Some of the indications in the latest policy statement, though, I would say do seem to be that the FCA really expects this whole question to be relevant to firms that fall within the definition of a personal investment firm. Um, Those firms are subject currently to IPRUIN 13. So, for example, CAD firms operating outside the retail space, it does look as if these aren't the sort of firms that the FCA is expecting to see submit a BOP that would bring them outside the scope of the IFR. In this final section of this podcast, Jonathan Herbs, a partner in our London Financial Services team, will take us through some of the headlines concerning how the new rules 
apply to clearing members and indirect clearing members. Uh, thanks a lot, Simon. Hi, everybody. Um, now, this is, it's fair to say, one of the more arcane topics, so I will try and make it as, as clear and simple as I possibly can in a brief podcast. So I think the first thing to say, it's a really macro point, but it, you know, it bears repeating, is that this is a big change for these sorts of firms in that the old credit risk approach has entirely disappeared to the extent that clearing is being done through an equivalent CCP, or we are talking about an exchange traded derivative. In those circumstances, um, no trading counterparty default K factor needs to be taken. And so the whole old concept of sort of credit risk and many of the debates we had around the extent to which, um, you know, a non-clearing member can replace a, a, an exposure to a clearing member that was one to the CCP, or exactly how uh, clearing members need to deal with their exposures to the CCP, or indeed the back off. All of those things go away in that old form. So that's point number one, really macro point, but tremendously significant. In terms of what does actually apply, there's quite a lot to be thought about. So first thing I'd say is that the FCA has made it clear um, that clearing members or indirect clearing firms will not, um, you know, they will not fall within the SNI regime. Uh, they don't benefit from that regime. And therefore, it's, it's critical to, to note that whether they, that they with, in relation to that firm itself, or if there is such a firm in the group, they don't benefit from the light touch. Uh, it cannot be an SNI group. So that's, that's point number one. Um, second point to note is that the way the FCA proposes to apply the daily, daily trading flow calculation is to all of the transactions where there's an FCA investment firm providing clearing services as a clearing member or as an indirect clearing firm. Now, they have taken account of one critical point in that, they, which is the situation where uh, the firm is both executing and clearing and the DTF or the COA, COH um, that's the client order handling K factor has already been calculated for the execution activity. In those circumstances, there won't be a doubling up, so to speak, of the same calculation for the clearing activity. So you just do it once. A couple of other quick points to note. Uh, the first is that FCA investment firms will be required to include their default fund contribution as part of their trading counterparty default calculations. And the final point is that in relation to the fixed overheads requirements, the uh, fees paid to a CCP exchange or trading venue will be treated as part of fixed expenses. So that's the sort of basic framework. J just one other area I'd very quickly pick up on, and, and I won't go into all the detail here, but it's important to note that there is this regime that people will be aware of where in certain circumstances, uh, a, clearing for, a clearing broker, a clearing firm, can replace the net position risk calculation with the amount of clearing margin given the CMG calculation. And I think the nutshell point to make about that is there are very strict criteria about that. You've got to apply, there's got to be a 99% cover over of the period, period for at least a two-day two -day period. Um, once the permission is granted, you've got to, if there's an expectation you will use it, for at least two years in relation to the relevant portfolio. And there are also limitations in relation to the kinds of firms that can apply. And I should just say in that last context, 
um, that the FCA did listen to some of the consultation responses and in the policy statement, they have somewhat opened up beyond just UK firms to recognize the possibility of um, a UK firm where the, the um, CCP is overseas and various other situations where there are non-UK parties in the chain to use this particular um, waiver. But nevertheless, it's, it's potentially quite a significant application if one wants to use it. I think the other thing I should just say is in terms of the policy statement and major changes, broadly speaking, the FCA stuck to its approach. So I don't think there is significant change, but there are a few little points in there. So it's definitely worth the read the recent policy statement. I think that's my summary, although, as I say, very high level in, in the confines of a fairly brief podcast. Thanks, Jonathan. That concludes the first podcast in our new mini-series on the UK IFPR. Further podcasts on the UK IFPR will follow. Don't also forget that on the Norton Rose Fulbright website, we have a UK IFPR impact product that provides a high-level summary of the draft prudential source book for MIFID investment firms, as well as any consequential amendments to other FCA source books. But for now, thank you for listening. Goodbye.